Because this week's parasha speaks about the golden altar and the making of the golden altar for the incense at the end, I would like to talk a little bit about today, today about the ketoret or the incense in the holy temple in Jerusalem. So one of the things that was offered in the holy temple in Jerusalem was ketoret, incense, in addition to the menorah, in addition to the um, uh, lighting the menorah, in addition to sacrifices that were offered outside in the um, big, uh, in the courtyard on the big altar, and in addition to the bread that was baked and placed on the table, on the shulchan, um, there was also a golden altar inside the temple on which they would offer incense. And this incense was offered twice a day, once in the morning and once in the afternoon. In addition, they would uh, the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, in the, um, in the climax of the special service of Yom Kippur, the high priest would take a pan filled with incense into the Holy of Holies, and over there burn incense in front of the Ark of the Covenant, inside the Holy of Holies. And that was the highlight of the high priest's service in the temple and the most important moment in the service of the temple over the year. So the, this incense, this ketoret, had a very, very, was very unique, and we'll soon see, and very, very powerful. And we'll see how timely it is, um, the incense, because it particularly had power against diseases. So um, the ketoret, the incense, had a very special formula. And it had to be made exactly according to its special formula. Now, during the Second Temple period, we're told, the making of the ketoret was... There was one family, one priestly family, Kohanic family, the house of Aftinas, they were called, Bet Aftinas, that had a monopoly on the making of the ketoret, and nobody else really knew how to make it. Only this family kept it as a closely guarded secret within this family. They had a special room in the temple where they would make the ketoret. It was a closely guarded secret in this family. Only their members would make the ketoret. Now, although, as we'll soon see, we're not sure exactly how the Torah was made, um, we are, the Torah does forbid us and, um, with, uh, to copy the compound of the Torah. So we are forbidden to attempt to make the Torah, the incense that was used in the temple. And if we do make it, or we somehow get hold of the original Torah, we are forbidden to use it for personal use. It may only be used for God. Now this ketoret, this incense, we are told is extremely powerful. We first encounter the power of the ketoret, the incense, on the day of the inauguration of the Mishkan of the temple in the desert. On the day they inaugurated the Mishkan, we're going to read it in about two months in the portion of Shemini, um, about around Passover time. On the day of the inauguration of the temple, Aaron had two older sons, Nadav and Avihu. And they were very excited and um, with the inauguration, with this great moment, that Nadav and Avihu took pans and they took some of the incense and they went themselves, not commanded to do so, not supposed to be doing so. They went with these fire pans uh, and put incense, went into the temple and put incense on the fire pans. 
and the Torah tells us a fire went out from before God and burned them both. And they both died there inside the temple on the day of inauguration. It was a terrible tragedy for Aaron. It was his great day for Moses and for all the people that Aaron's two older sons, who were considered leaders of the people, um, died suddenly on that day. But there's a number of reasons given as to why they died, but in reading the Torah, the most simplest reason is they offered ketoret incense when they were not supposed to. So you've got to be really careful with this ketoret. Later, sometime later, Korach is a cousin of Moses who challenged Moses' leadership and particularly challenged Aaron, who was appointed as the Kohen Gadol, as the high priest, And Korach said, it is not fair. Why did you appoint your brother as the high priest? And so when Korach challenged Moses, um, and he he had 250 leaders of Israel who joined his challenge, Moses said, let us see who is supposed to be high priest. All of you should get fire pans, put coals on it, and offer incense on those pans before God in the temple. And... As you know, if you are not supposed to be doing it, then God will punish you. And they all did so. They all brought the next day fire pans, 250 men um, with the incense. And they offered incense on these fire pans. And together, and Aaron did as well. And all 250 men died. Is it a different scent or the same? The same incense. The same incense. So so the ketoret, the incense has, we don't know its smell, we don't know what exactly, we're going to soon talk about what it was made of. So the ketoret, the incense, was extremely, extremely dangerous. We know Aaron's sons died, Korach's 250 men died from this incense. So we see that it is a very, very powerful thing. But it doesn't only have negative power. It also, and more importantly, has great positive power. The Torah tells us that there was a plague among Israel. The people complained about Moses, and God sent a plague. And there was plague, and people were dying from the plague. God told, sorry, Moses told Aaron to take a pan with coals and put the ketoret, put the incense on the pan with the coals and walk among the people in the camp. And as Aaron did so, those who were dying were healed, and people stopped dying, and in that way the plague stopped by Aaron walking around with the incense. So it has great positive power. It is able to stop plague. The Midrash? Yes. The Midrash tells us that Ketorah, the incense, has the power over the angel of death. There is a special angel that God appoints called the angel of death who is sent on a mission when somebody's time comes to end. There are times, the Midrash tells us, when the angel of death is given free reign. So normally, the angel of death... um, is only God sends them to take the lives of specific individuals whose time has come. However, there are times of plague when God says the angel of death can 
kill anyone they wish. And during such a moment, when the angel of death is given free reign, um, during a time of plague, the, um, the ketorah, the incense, is able to stop the angel of death. Not only that, we are told that the ketorah, the incense, has other great powers in it. In fact, we know that, during, uh, that in the temple, the kohanim would compete. They would have a lottery as to who did the different jobs in the temple. Um, everybody wanted to do. There were many different jobs that had to be done with the sacrifices, with lighting the menorah, with many other things that had to be done in the temple. The kohanim would have lotteries to see who got to do it. And the one that everyone wanted to do was the ketoret. Everyone wanted to offer the incense because there was, there was a belief that whoever got to offer the incense in the um, temple, whichever Cohen got to offer it, would become very, very wealthy as a result. And so everybody wanted to do it. And so therefore, because, because of that, they made a rule that every Kohen normally, a Kohen, um, they, would, they would usually, so most Kohenim would serve twice a year, two days a year in the temple um, to give a turn for everyone. And when your day came, um, they would have a lottery as to what you, were, what you would end up doing. And um, even if you did it once, you could go into the lottery again, with the exception was the incense. Once a Kohen did the incense one time, they would never be able to go into the lottery to do it again. So they would always have a new Kohen did it that never did it before in order to give everybody the opportunity to offer the Ketorah, the incense. Yes? Do you, do you know how many Kohenim were actively participating in all the um, functions of the temple? We don't know. We don't know. But it would have been hundreds, if not thousands, possibly every day. And each one only got two days a year. They're all descendants of Aaron? All male descendants of Aaron. Yes, there were a lot of Kohen. Yes. I have a question. Um, you know when they put the rope around them? Yeah. In case... And they went in. Why did they need to pull them out if they were Kohen? You're asking about the Yom Kippur service. Yeah, so the, the ketoret was, it was very dangerous to go into the Holy of Holies and offer a ketoret, and a high priest who did not do it properly the way they were supposed to would die there and then in the Holy of Holies. That's what you're referring to. So, um, so the ketoret, we're told, we don't know exactly what it smelled like, but it had a very powerful, pleasant smell, and it would be so powerful that it could be smelled as far away as Jericho. Jericho is about 15 miles east of Jerusalem. So it could be smelled 15 miles away. It was an extremely powerful smell. So how was the ketorah made? So the ketorah was made annually, once a year. It was made for the entire year in one go. And the compound, the mixture that they would make, had 368 maneh. A mana is about 15 ounces, so just under a pound. So little over 300 pounds. Um, and so, no, so it was a pretty large compound. Um, they would offer, why 368 mana? Because they would offer half a mana in the morning, in the morning with the morning incense, and half a mana in the, or seven and a half ounces, and half a mana 
in the afternoon. And so together was one mana a day. Over a year was 365 mana using the solar year, that is. And in then there were 368 mana in total. The other three mana were used for the high priest on Yom Kippur. So the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. He had to use his full handful. So he would take a full handful with both hands um, and, uh, and use, that's how much he had to use. And so there would be three mana that he would use for the, um, in order from which he would take his full handful. There would be a little bit left and every 70 years or so it would add up they would end up having about a half year's worth extra um, of, um, of ketoret, of incense. Now, there were the ketoret, the, the, this ketoret had 11 ingredients. Mm-hmm. There were 11 ingredients. Some of them are mentioned in the Torah itself in next week's reading. Some of them are not mentioned, but they're part of our oral tradition. We know their names given to us in Hebrew um, from the, we have a Brita, a um, tradition um, of the Ketorah, of how the incense was made. Um, and um, that we recite every day, and we'll soon talk about that. Um, and it lists the 11 ingredients. Um, now, we don't know exactly what each of these ingredients are. Many of these ingredients, it is debated as to what exactly they are. The first ingredient is called tsari. What is tsari? So we're told that tsari comes from a tree called the ketaf tree, um, which only helps if you know what the ketaf tree is. Um, and so it's tra- many early scholars translate it as balsam. Balsam is a spice that comes from a balsam tree, and so, uh, and so they say it is balsam. Um, the next one is called tsiporen. Now, we're not sure exactly what tsiporen is. Um, we are told in, that they used a soap um, called boris karshina, which was some form of soap, to rub the tsiporen to make it clean, as well as they would soak it in Yain kafrisen or cypress wine um, in order to cleanse this tsiporen. Um, we're not sure exactly what the tsiporen is. Um, the third spice is called chelbana. Some translate chelbana as galbanum, which is, sounds awfully similar to chelbana. Um, others say that it is a plant called farula. Um, the Talmud tells us that chelbana was a spice that had a very bad scent. Smelled really bad. I don't think galbanum smells bad. Apparently farula does smell bad. Uh, But it's a spice with a very bad scent. And the Talmud says the reason why it is used is because in order to make the perfect incense in the temple, you need to also include a bad smell. Because in, order, because in order for our people to be perfect, we need to include everybody. Even the bad apples among us are part of our people and must be included. And when we stand before God, we stand before God, everyone included, good and bad. 
And for that reason, says the Talmud, when we stand um, before God on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, all the people stand together on Yom Kippur and we ask God for atonement. What is the very first prayer that we say? Of course, the first thing that we say on Yom Kippur is the Kol Nidre. Right? The Kol Nidre is the first prayer that we say on Yom Kippur. Before the Kol Nidre, though, if you look in your Machzer, in your Yom Kippur prayer book, you'll see there are three little lines that read Al Da'at HaMakom Al Da'at HaKahol with God's permission and with the congregation's permission, permission um, with the permission of the courts, we are inviting in all of those that have been thrown out of the community um, over the year are welcome back into the synagogue for Yom Kippur prayers. So over the years, sometimes communities would have to um, uh, excommunicate people or um, throw people out of the community because of certain really bad things that they may have done. On Yom Kippur, we invite them all back in. Because we want, when we turn to God, we want to have everyone there, the good and the bad, just as the Ketorah spice had everything there, the good and the bad. Does that mean they were back permanently or just for the day? They were back for the day. <laughs> then the fourth spice in the Ketorah, in the incense, is Lavona. Lavona is a spice that was used extensively in the temple. It was used in the temple in addition to the animal sacrifices that we'll talk about in a couple weeks. There were also a number of what was called mincha. Mincha were flower-based sacrifices. And almost all the flower-based sacrifices in the temple included Lavona as one of the ingredients in this flower-based sacrifice. Um, it's usually translated as frankincense, Frankincense was a very common spice used in the Middle East um, and uh, was used and is mentioned throughout Tanakh, throughout Scripture. Um, the fifth spice is called Mar. Mar. What is Mar? So some translate Mar as Myrrh. Myrrh, right? Myrrh is a very similar sounding spice uh, and it comes from a, the Myrrh tree. In fact, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem was known as Har HaMoriah, Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, why Moriah? From the word Mor, from the myrrh tree. Apparently there were myrrh trees on Mount Moriah. Um, so, um, so, many, so many translated as Mor, as myrrh. Um, others, however, Maimonides says, and other um, commentaries say, that it actually was not a plant-based, but it was an animal-based spice, and it came from a ram. Now, which part of the ram it was, I don't know. But it was an animal-based spice. The next spice, number six, is ketsia. What is ketsia? Um, we don't know what's for certain. Some think that ketsia is cassia. Cassia is a type of cinnamon. Um, and so some think that it is cassia. The next one is called shibolet nerd. Shibolet nerd, some think it is lavender. Um, number eight is karkom. Karkom is in modern Hebrew today translated as ginger. We don't know if it was then ginger as well, but that's what it's used in modern Hebrew and 
um, in other Middle Eastern languages. Um, the next one that we have is Kosht. We don't know what Kosht is. Um, number 10 is Kilufa. We don't know what Kilufa is either. Um, Kilufa presumably comes from the word Kiluf, which means peel, which may have come either from the bark of a tree or from a peel of a fruit. And then the last one is Kinamon. Kinamon is translated in modern Hebrew as cinnamon, and it was probably silent cinnamon, which is another common type of cinnamon. Silan cinnamon? Salon. Sorry. So there are so there were these eleven spices. As you see, we know what some of them are. We don't know what many of them are. There is some debate over most of them as to exactly what they are. So even if we tried, we'd have trouble actually making the ketoret um, because we don't know what all the spices are. Yes. This is what God uh, gave with this formula. Yes, this is our this form is from God, from God to Moses. We're told the first four spices, which were tsari, tsiporin, chelbana, and levona, you should have 70 mana of each. Remember, mana is just under a pound. 70 mana of each of the first four spices. Of the next four, which were mor, katia, shibolitner, and karkom, there would be 16 mana each. Kosht would have 12 mana. Kilufa, 3 mana. And kinamon would be nine money. Altogether, 70 times 4, 16 times 4. 12 plus 3 plus 9 is 368. As we mentioned, there was 368 money of the entire compound. Yes? Why in the prayer book does it say you're not supposed to add honey when honey is not part of the formula? Very good question. Um, the honey is not part of the formula, but honey could be added. Um, we'll see. There are some other things that are added, but we don't. We're not. We're not supposed to add honey. Um, the um, in addition, we add a quarter mana, which is a mana again. We said is about fifteen ounces. We add a quarter mana of salt um, into this compound, and we also add a pinch. Little amount of an herb called ma'ale ashan. Ma'ale ashan literally means go up smoke. And this herb, which they only added a drop of this ma'ale ashan, but it was mixed in, would cause that the ketorah, the incense, when it would be burned, would go up in a very straight line. So it would go up as a straight pillar all the way up, and then when it hit the roof of the temple, it would spread out as a cloud. And this was a secret spice. The Talmud says we don't know what this spice was, what this herb was. It was a secret herb. And only the family of Aftinas, who had the new, the secret of making the ketorah, the incense, knew exactly where and how to produce this herb. Were all the ingredients readily available? To them, or were there like caravans coming through the desert? I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I have one. Why would they put salt in it? Because salt, like, retards the flame. I don't know. Um, I just know that's what they did. I don't know. Now, it does mention that honey would be very good for it, 
but you cannot put honey in because it's not part of the 11 spices plus those two additional that we mentioned. Um, we don't, again, truly know what the original ingredients are. There's a lot of debate over it. Uh, there are many who have tried and spent time trying to locate these ingredients um, using... Um, um, trying to figure out what those words would have meant in ancient Hebrew. Um, we don't actually know. Rav Sadia Gaon, who lived about um, 1,100 years ago, uh, sorry, 1,100 years ago um, in Babylon, wrote names in Arabic for each of the spices. Um, some debate his names. Um, we're not even sure what each of those Arabic names are because Arabic itself has changed in the last 1,100 years. So we're told that the Ketorah, the incense, would be, have to be ground very, very, very fine, extremely fine. Um, so it would be like a flour substance. And only then be mixed very, very well and ground very, very fine until, um, and only then it could be used for incense. When, they would, when Yom Kippur would come for the high priest to take the incense into the Holy of Holies, he, they would grind it again, throw it into the grinder a second time, and grind it again to make it even finer than it was already. Yes? Okay, so you have this powdered um, thing. Right, mixture. I mean, today, if you were to buy incense, it would, to burn it, they like have it in a hard thing or a stick, right? So the way they burned it, very good question. It was on a powder, it was powder. And it would be burned, as we said, inside the temple. So inside the temple, there was, a, there was a golden altar that we mentioned, mentioned in this week's parsha at the very end, that was three cubits high, which is, um, sorry, it was, um, it was two cubits high, which is about three feet, very short, and one cubit wide, which is, um, which is about a foot and a half wide. It's a very this tiny little altar, and they would take a pan and go um, to, on top of the altar in the courtyard, which was a giant altar um, and all, that always had fire on it. And they would take coals, burning coals from the altar, and they would fill the pan with it. Then they would go into the temple. They would pour the coals onto the golden altar. And then they would take the half money, which was about seven and a half ounces of this um, of this flower, and they would just drop the flower over the coals, and that's how the incense was offered. Yes, yeah, sprinkle it over the coals, and the in the holy in the when the high priest went into the holy of holies, he would carry in a pan and a spoon that was filled with the incense, and a pan in one hand, spoon in the other hand. He'd put down the pan. He'd fill his hands with the spoon, and then he would drop it onto the pan. He would drop the incense onto the pan, so, and then the smoke would go up um, on, from the pan itself. And then he would go back in later um, in the day to take the pan out of the Holy of Holies. Yes? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. How did they keep the gold from melting on the top of the um, altar? I don't know. Very good question. Well, it was burning coals, so they would have been hot. Um, I don't know. I don't know how hot gold needs to be to melt. That's a good question. 
So today, the temple is destroyed. Do you have another question? Very good question. We're going to talk about that in a moment. Oh, and yes. So, question. So, incense is not really still a, a tradition. We're going to talk about that right now. <laughs> yes. We are forbidden from trying to copy the incense of the temple. There's no val- there's no there's no ritual or Jewish value in any other incense. But there's no there is no there is no Jewish spiritual value to be clear. The power of the Ketoret is only from the Ketoret exactly as the Torah describes. There is no ritual or spiritual value in Judaism from any other type of incense that you may buy. It has no value whatsoever from a spiritual perspective. That could be, but we're focused here on the spiritual power of the Ketoret of the incense. So today... Wait, you said we don't really know the ingredients, but like you just said, there's commercial incense. What if by mistake somebody stumbles on this, we don't know, and you happen to burn incense? The rabbis didn't prohibit getting incense. What if you end up with the real deal? You violated a Torah commitment. I think the chances of that happening are very slim. Yeah. Uh, but, the, but the rabbi has some more questions. Anyway, because those people died, they tried to make. So yes, we're not allowed to copy it, and we're not allowed to offer it outside the temple. Absolutely. Today we no longer have a temple, and therefore the ketorah, the incense that we, the special incense that we offered in the temple, can no longer be offered. We no longer offer that incense. It cannot be copied. We cannot offer it outside the temple. We don't even know how to make it anymore. Yet, we can still access the great power of the Ketoret, the great power of the incense in the temple. The prophet Hosea says, Oneshalma parim svatenu. We can complete the, uh, the bulls of the sacrifices through with our lips. Our sages tell us that means that when we read the Torah, the Torah's description of the different sacrifices, it God considers it, it has the same power as if we offered those sacrifices. So though we no longer have sacrifices, we read about the sacrifices every day in our prayer because we're able to invoke the power of the sacrifices today without a temple just by reading about it. The Zohar tells us that by reading the portion of the Ketoret, by reading both the reading from the Torah, which is next week's portion in Kitisa about the Ketoret, and by reading what's called the Breita HaKetoret, the um, oral tradition about, our, about the Ketoret, by reading about it, we can invoke the great positive powers associated with the Ketoret and those who offered the Ketoret in the temple. And therefore, says the Zohar, it should be read very, very carefully. You have to focus on every single word as reading it. And it is able to um, both heal us as the temp- as the Ketoret, the incense did, 
um, in the days of the um, uh, in the days of Aaron, and it is also able to bring us great blessings and great wealth as it did for the Kohanim that offered it in the days of the temple. It, just must, it must be read, though, with very great focus. And so we read it, make sure to read each word properly, and uh, make sure to count all 11 ingredients as we read it. And if we read it, um, then it has great blessings. And therefore, for that reason, it has been included in our prayers and we read the Ketorah actually three times every day. Once before our prayers, to invoke the great power of the Ketorah, before we even begin our prayers. A second time at the end of our morning prayers, in order to invoke the great power of the Ketorah throughout our day. And then a third time in the afternoon, before our afternoon prayers, to invoke the power of the Ketorah again. The Zohar tells us, that there was a great sage called Rav Acha, who went to a town in Babylon called Tarsha. And while he was there, a plague broke out, and people were dying of plague. And they heard that the great sage Rav Acha was in town. So they called Rav Acha, and Rav Acha said, and they said, what do we do? Rav Acha said, let us go to the synagogue and we will pray to God. And they said, we have no time to go to the synagogue and pray to God. People are dying all over. And so Rav Acha said, take four minyanim, four groups of quorums of ten people. Each one should go, each minyan, each group of ten people, should go to another corner of the town, the four corners of the town. And each one in a corner should go to a corner of the town and there together they should read the reading of the Ketoret. And just as Aaron stopped the plague in, um, just as Aaron stopped the plague in, um, uh, in uh, the days of Moses, so too the plague will stop. And um, they, indeed they did that and sure, and then a... Um, Rav Acha was told that it's not enough just to read the Ketoret. They must repent, tell the people in the, in the town to change their ways. And they did that, and the plague was stopped. And so therefore we know, and they were told that the name of that town was originally called Tarsha, and it was changed to Mata Machsia, which later became, which was a great Jewish community in Babylon and the center of a great yeshiva, a great school later in Babylon. So we know that reading, just reading the Ketoret itself is a very, very powerful thing. It can stop plagues. It can stop other negative things, reading it with great focus and great concentration. It can stop plagues. It can stop other negative things. It can... Um, uh, it can bring great success, great wealth, if one reads the Ketoret with proper focus and proper devotion. The, um, there is a com the custom in many communities, particularly Sephardic communities, to actually have the Ketoret written um, as a scribe would write on parchment with special Torah ink and read it from that parchment every time, read the Ketoret from a parchment um, in order to um, and focus on it in order to invoke the great powers of the Ketoret. Now, why is Ketoret so powerful? What is the great power of the Ketoret? 
So in Kabbalah, it explains that the Hebrew word ketoret, in Aramaic, sorry, the word ketoret means, and Hebrew and Aramaic are very similar languages. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of exchange between the languages. In Aramaic, the word ketoret means connection. Ketoret is that which connects us to God. And it refers to a deep connection with God beyond anything else that we may do. So we all have an, a connection with God, but there are two types of connections. There's what we call an external connection with God, a connection based on what we do. Um, we follow God, what God wants based on our feelings, on our talking, on our relationship, on our actions with God. And then we have a much, much deeper connection, a natural built-in connection with God that every one of us has. And so the Ketoret represents this great, deep connection with God. And that is why we are told the Ketoret has 11 spices. Our tradition in Kabbalah tells us that every soul has 10 powers, Eser Kochot, which correspond to God's 10 Sephirot, God's 10 powers. The Ketoret has 11, though, 11 representing going beyond the 10 powers to the deepest part of the soul. And so the Ketoret connects our, deep, our deepest part of the soul, which is itself connected directly with God. And it invokes that deep connection that we have with God. And that is why the high priest on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, would go into the Holy of Holies, which was the inner room of the temple where the Ark of the Covenant stood, and over there he would offer the Ketoret, because the Ketoret would invoke our deepest possible connection with God. Deep down, each one of us have a very deep connection with God. And so sometimes, in times of trouble, times of difficulty, um, we turn to God and we may not really be deserving of God's help depending on our actions. Sometimes it may be a time where God doesn't want to help us for whatever reason. But so the Ketoret invokes that much, much deeper connection, that, that relationship that we have with God. So when we speak of, when the Zohar speaks of reciting the Ketoret with great focus and great devotion, what it means is to recite the Ketoret focusing on this deep inner connection with God. The in the book of Kings, it tells us a story about the prophet Elisha. The prophet Elisha was once, uh, a woman once came to him. She was the wife of another prophet called Ovadia. Ovadia had spent his, uh, had, um, spent his fortune saving um, prophets from the hands of the wicked um, Izevel, um, Jezebel, who was tried to kill out all the Jewish religious leaders. And he saved many of them by hiding them in caves, and he needed to feed them, and so he spent all his money feeding them, and then he borrowed huge amounts of money. And, he, um, and then he died when he was heavily indebted. And he had borrowed money actually from the king, uh, from the prince, Yeravam, and um, the king, who was a wicked king of Israel at the time, he wanted to, after Ovadia died without repaying his debts, he, said he wanted to take, he told Ovadia's widow 
that he would take her children as slaves, her two sons as slaves, um, to work off the debt that their father owed him. It's against Jewish law, but he did not care much for Jewish rules and values. And so she came to the prophet Elisha and this widow of Avadja, and she said, what do I do? My children are going to be taken as slaves. My husband spent his life saving Jewish religious leaders, Jewish prophets, um, and uh, got into great debt because of it. And now my children will be taken as slaves to this wicked king. And so Elisha said, do you have anything at home? And she said, my house is bare. There is nothing at home. I have no food at home. I have nothing. He said, do you have nothing at all? She said, I have a small jug of oil at home. So Elisha said, this is what I would like you to do. I would like you to go to all of your neighbors and ask them all to give you bowls and pots and pans, every utensil that you can find, and fill up your house with utensils. And then when your house is filled with utensils from all your neighbors, you're going to take the jug, close the door and take the, with your two sons, and take the jug of oil and start pouring it. And pour it from one utensil into the next. And you will have enough oil to pay back all your debts. And so she does that. She, and you will be able to then live off the remainder. And so she does that. She goes to um, she goes she goes to her neighbors. She borrows utensils, and she um, fills up. She pours the oil, and it pours and pours and pours and pours until every single utensil in the house was filled with oil. And then she turns to her children. She says, "It's still pouring. Is there any more?" They say, there are only some broken ones. She said, well, if this miraculous oil could be held in broken utensils too, she pours it into the broken ones, and although they, it, they should have leaked, they did not. And until finally the last utensil is, she pours, and then the oil stops. And so she goes then, and she sells the oil, and she has enough money from that oil to pay off all of her debts, as well as to... Um, as well as then to live off the rest. And so in Exodus we say that this story, it's a beautiful story, but this story is really, it happened, but it also is a parable for our own lives. Um, the woman coming to Elisha is the same, is, um, a, is a, represents a regular person, um, repre represents the soul, the soul turns to God and the soul says that your husband has died. What does it mean that the husband has died? That our relationship with God has died. Um, in other words, that we have lost our connection. We don't feel a connection with God. We don't feel very spiritual. We don't feel very Jewish. People go through this crisis in their lives. They don't feel spiritually connected. They don't feel connected to their Jewishness. They don't feel connected at all. And so Elisha says, what do you have? She says, I have nothing. And all she has is a jug of oil. And the jug of oil refers to this deep, deep connection. This deep connection that every person has naturally with God. 
And so Elisha says, go pour the jug of oil and start pouring it into different utensils. And that means is start doing good things. Start doing a mitzvah. Do a mitzvah here, do a mitzvah there. And as you do more and more mitzvahs, what will happen is it will light up the spark. It will light up the spark of God in your soul um, because we all have it there naturally. And that is really the power of the Ketoret. Every one of us have deep inside of us this natural connection with God that is invoked by the Ketoret. We read the portion of the Ketoret is not just about reading about the incense, but it's about awakening that power, that relationship with God. The way we awaken that relationship with God is by going, by getting empty utensils. In other words, going through the motions. Going through the motions, doing a mitzvah, lighting Shabbat candles, putting on the tefillin, coming to shul, saying a prayer, going through the motions of doing a mitzvah. And as we go through the motions, what happens is that then lights up the spark that's deep down in our soul. And that is able to overcome our um, emptiness in our life, our lack of spirituality in our life. But also, as we've seen, by lighting up our soul, it can also bring, help us overcome any tragedies or any struggles that we have in life. If we can light up our connection with God, it helps us overcome the struggles in life. It helps us overcome plague, as the Ketorah did. And it helps bring us great success and wealth if we only are able to light up that spark, that connection with God that comes through the Ketorah.